Hello everyone, it's me, Max. Thank you for listening. I'm very grateful. In this episode, Nick Amy's and I discuss Suede's 1999 post-Britpop album, Heb Music, a flawed but occasionally brilliant album that contains several of the best songs in the Suede canon. I've decided to trim the conversation into the two sides of the album so that you can hopefully listen on the commute to work or while you're doing something else that takes about 25 minutes. Before I let you get started though, I want to remind you that my good friends at Starship Club have a big event coming up on the 2nd of August in London, a party to celebrate the 25th anniversary of Definitely Maybe, and that's going to include a Q&A with Alan McGee, a performance of the album in its entirety by Oasis, as well as the Starshaped Club Night. You should go. Okay, enjoy the episode. There's Ted's with drain pipe trousers and dips in coffee houses and things ain't what they used to be. Well, hello and welcome along to another episode of Two Middle-Aged Men Talk About Music from Their uh, Adolescence, the Mild-Mannered Army podcast. Uh, this evening, of course, I'm joined as ever by my very good friend, Mr. Nick Amies, and we're going to be turning our attention to an album that came out in May of 1999, just at the end of the century. It was the album that followed the enormous success of Coming Up by Suede, uh, but it was an album that was plagued by rumours later verified of drug use and drug abuse that had kind of blighted the band themselves and I think probably blighted the process of recording the record. Whatever, it certainly wasn't an easy record to make and it wasn't really an easy record to listen to in very many ways. We're talking, of course, this evening about head music. So, good evening to you, Mr. Amy's. Good evening, good evening. It's May 1999 and coming up, of course, has been this enormous success and a very much a surprising success. Nobody thought that they would be able to replace Bernard Butler. Arguably, they didn't replace Bernard Butler. Arguably, with the addition of Richard Oakes, they became a, a very different band. But whatever the case was, coming up was this enormous success. I think it had something like 27 top 10 singles released from it. It was just everywhere. You, you couldn't move uh, for coming up. But then in the background, before we get to each track, Nick, in the background, there's a couple of things going on, right? On yeah. First of all, you've got Brett Anderson, who is either, depending on which version you, you listen to, addicted to crack or experimenting with crack, or heroin is lurking around in the background. And then you've also got Neil Codling struggling with what at that time would have been called ME, but which we now call chronic fatigue syndrome. Both of those things, I think, interfered with the album. And I think that you can hear that interference throughout the album. Would would that be fair? I think that is fair, yeah. And I also, um, again, as you say, depending on what version you hear, uh, Richard Oakes was also struggling with alcoholism at the time mm. to cope with the um, the situation around the band with Brett becoming more and more uh, wrapped up in what he was doing and the people who he was doing that with. And I think that I think Simon and uh, Matt Osman were probably the the two members of the band which were still anchoring it down to planet Earth. That's what I've heard and what I've read. And uh, we, I suppose, 
we'll have to find out the truth from the mouths of those involved one day. But uh, yeah. Well, in in David Barnett's book, Love and Poison, there's a, a, a moment where Matt Osman certainly talks about that, right? He talks about all these people who started to kind of orbit or enter the orbit of the band and That's float it, yeah. around Brett. And he talks about those people, I, I think the phrase he used uses is that they were drug buddies you know they didn't even do the music they weren't contributing anything creatively it wasn't warhol's factory set you know instead it was just people who were there for the drugs and it's interesting because before the album's released they did that thing and i mentioned this in my my article on the the album on, on the site they released the title of the album one letter at a time do you remember this vaguely and, yeah uh, yeah and so it was h and then it was e mm. and everybody thought the album was going to be called heroin Everybody. And then I think the band realised that this probably wasn't a great idea. <laughs> and so they, they kind of ditched that and just said, OK, well, it's going to be called um, Head Music. Just to go back to that drug thing, there is also a bit in Barnett's book where he talks about Steve Osborne, who I'm sure we'll, we'll touch on, given yeah. his work with another band that you uh, have a great love for. Um, he he says, Osborne said that when they were doing a, a run-through of Savoir Faire, that he was offered a crack pipe by two of these kind of drug buddies. And he, I think, I'm right, it's long since I've read the book, but I think he kind of took a puff on this thing because he thought it was a hash pipe. Yeah, um, I read that too, yeah. Yeah, and that, I think gives you some idea about what suede world was like at that point yeah pretty bleak i think you you mentioned the whole uh campaign of releasing the h and the e and everything i mean i came to head music really late i didn't i definitely wasn't listening to it when it came out and i just wondered um where were you and did you follow on directly from coming up were you following suede as religiously as you had done from the start or was there a point where you kind of because of the gap between the two i don't don't know things for me happened differently because uh after coming up things kind of changed in music for me and in my head and personal life which meant that i didn't come to head music until a lot later and i just wondered for you if it was an actual progression and and what your story is about the album before we go into it I think my situation was also beginning to change at that point. So by 1999, I'm now 26. I'm a young man, but I'm no longer a young man. And so my connection with pop music was growing more distant, slightly more strained in some ways, I guess. I had got married the year before. That that always changes things, right? Um, And I was also becoming increasingly reconnected with my faith so I'd had a long period away from people who've listened before will know that I was brought up as a a Mormon and I'd had a long period during the time at university and during the Britpop period when I I hadn't really gone along to church but when I got married I started kind of drifting back into that world again and so yeah I was aware of head music I bought head music but I don't think I ever really listened to it maybe more than once for a long, long time afterwards. And yeah, I, I think it's just about things had changed, right? I was I, I was in full-time work as well. I was no longer a student. I no longer had that kind of disposable income, nor that freedom. Once you enter into that kind of a relationship, you know, if you're not a complete cock, you're... <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. you're you're putting the needs of the other person at least 
on a par with your own. Yeah. Um, and so I just wasn't there in the way that I had been there as far as Suede were concerned and probably lots of other music. So, yeah, that, that would have been where I was at. What, what about you, 99? You, you, you seem to be hinting that you maybe were moving on to new musical pastures, Nick, from what you well, said earlier. Yeah, I, I, in, in honesty, I think I was in a kind of musical wasteland or, or maybe limbo or stasis even. I suppose I was still very much living in the 95, 96 era musically and also very much still kind of connected to that time mentally and spiritually, I suppose, because it was all a bit of a fog, to be honest. So I don't think I was following what was going on with the bands that I loved as much as I had done back then. I was kind of stuck with what they'd done then. And I was a bit lost at the time, I suppose. And uh, at that time, uh, my university degree had come to an end. My partner was, uh, she still had one year to go. So we were still, we were living together. Yet I was not a student anymore while she was. So I was trying to work while she was still finishing her degree. And um, all my friends had left. I was still living at, in Liverpool at the time. So it was kind of a weird time. And I was dealing in, I suppose, dealing in some way with the end of Britpop and what that meant for me in terms of identity. So I was a bit messed up. And uh, so I think I maybe came to head music two or three years later, once Clarity had returned. And I found that I wanted to plug the gaps in like the repertoires of my bands, which I'd left behind or I'd just been stuck in that one area. And uh, so I bought head music and then I bought a new morning, which had just come out. So I suppose that must have been around, what, 2002? And so, well, ironically, given my almost total dedication to Britpop during the mid-90s, it was a couple of US bands which had snapped me back into loving music again, and that was The Strokes and Interpol. And those two yeah. those two debut albums, uh, Is This It and Turn On The Bright Lights, they blew my mind, and I was excited about music again. tail end of Britpop as we know the crash which came after was pretty dark in places with you know albums like Blur and Standing on the Shoulder of Giants this is hardcore and then you get Exterminator by Primal Scream it's not it wasn't really healthy for me to listen to stuff like Radiohead you know which had come out <laughs> at the same time because like you know do I need to get any more introspective so when when the new, so when the New York scene came along it really perked me up and then I I started thinking where are my bands what are they doing and that's when i came to head music and you know we what given what had happened with many of the Britpop bands towards the end of that phase i might have been at risk listening to a post Britpop suede album because you know you could imagine how dark they could have got if they'd followed that whole millennium angst kind of drug come down theme you know jesus that was could have been pretty pretty bleak so i was i was actually pretty pleased and pleasantly surprised when i heard electricity for the first time the first single because you know, it was so lush, it was packed with noise and joyous in a way. And uh, it was what I needed Suede to be at that time. But the rest of the album, eh, 
Some highs, some lows, a mixed bag for sure. Electricity you've touched on already, Nick, it's just a great pop record. It's the kind of thing that wouldn't have been out of place alongside Filmstar or Trash or the beautiful ones from coming up. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It would have fitted very, very well on Coming Up. It has the same same uh, energy uh, as those first singles, for sure. Like I said earlier, I, f- I think it's packed with really beefy effects. It has a new guitar sound, which is very heavily electronically fuzzed, which I think was something which people were wondering about with... Um, with Steve, Steve Osborne coming in as a, exactly as an editor, what he was going to do. He was a dance, rock, dance, fusion producer with work with the Happy Mondays. And what was he going to do? Were they going to make a dance album? I can't, can't really see it. But yeah, it's a swaggering opener. It's an encouraging start, but I think it's a bit of a red herring when it comes to the rest of the album. What do you think? I, I think it's a, a really great pop song. But mm. I, I did also feel at the time that it felt a little bit safe. It felt like the same. It, it, I, I was waiting for some kind of great leap forward, I guess, in some ways. And I don't feel that I really got that. But it is a song I love. And if I'm making up a playlist of favourite suede moments, electricity, more often than not, will pop up on that list it, you know it's got all the usual suede things right violent homes lips like pain acdc kissing and it's all kind of yelped and squealed by brett and then richard's doing that thing in the background and you're right it, it is interesting that the sound although although it sounds like suede yeah. and logically those themes are there osborne does bring something slightly different there is more going on in the background maybe than there was on coming up yeah I think so too. I have some criticism of the the production, which will come. But I think on um, electricity, it works. That, as you say, it's a suede song. It sounds very suede. I like the point that you've made that it sounds also a bit too safe, which it could be like. Which could also hark back to what you originally said, which it could have been off coming up. So they maybe have thought, you know, that worked. This would work. Just give the producer uh, something which could have been on that album but do something a bit different with it but it works i think as uh yeah it's a rollicking rock song it's got something a bit different about it and i was encouraged i just think that um it sells a bit of a false image of what's to come yeah i, I would agree with that and from that rather thrilling opening despite the criticisms we made we come to a song which yeah um okay <laughs> yeah well, first, first of all, before it's not we... a good start, right? It's not. It's, <laughs> I, I, I don't feel any positivity coming the way of Savoir Faire, to be honest. We chose Steve Osborne because um, we were a fan of his, um, because he um, 
co-produced that Happy Mondays album, Pills, Thrills and Belly Aches, with uh, Paul Oakenfold. And um, he was one of the names that cropped up, and I think we all kind of suggested him at some stage. And um, we went in to do a demo, to do a couple of demos with him, and we did uh, a version of Savoir Faire. And that turned out really well, and we decided to use him on the strength of that. Choosing Steve was, was just a, a decision we made because we wanted, you know, he was, he was the sort of guy that had came from a different background from us, you know what I mean? We're, we're from a, like, a real rock background, you know, we spent four years playing to people in pubs and that, you know what I mean, and carrying our amps around. We're from this sort of smelly kind of London indie pub background and he's from like this kind of clean dance background. And we met him and, 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 we, and he seemed to be really sussed and, and we went and did a, a tryout track with him, a song called Savoir Faire on the album. And what he brought to that was just something really special. He just managed to keep the essence of the band, but just bring a real kind of a real, real clever sort of modernity to the music. Well, Savoir Faire is really two songs, isn't it? Would that be fair to say? Musically, I really like it. It's all kind of hazy and mm. fuggy, and it's a bit glam, and there's a bit of a reggae thing going on there, and it kind of throbs and pulses along, and it sounds like it should be amazing but it isn't yeah and i think that's because the other part of the song is the lyric and and the lyric is dreadful oh it's terrible she made love and swallowed a dove she got pretty feet Mm, she got savoir faire yeah 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 and 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 the important (laughs) the important thing about this girl is is that she live in a house She's stupid as a mouse. I don't know what was going on. I mean, I guess this is crack, right? I mean, that's the that's the only way to explain this away. That would be my guess. I mean, I, I actually think there's something before the the terrible lyrics come in. I think it's quite it's one of these Bowie esque um, musical arrangements. This one for me, it reminds me a little bit of the Station to Station era Bowie, like TVC fifteen. It's but it's it's a bit pants, isn't it? I mean, compared to the muscular opening track, this is strained and weak. And I know Brett was struggling with whatever addiction he had, crack, whatever, during the making of the album. I can imagine him propped up in a sound booth trying to squeeze this one out through sweats <laughs> and cramps. You know, it sounds it sounds like a struggle. It sounds painfully thin, and the lyrics are crap. Like he's forgotten how to write his own songs and has used that you know random suede lyric generator. To come up, come up with the song because it's just for the sake of it. Here's some words to go with this, and it just it's yeah, it's really it's actually quite offensive. Let's move on to something that for me certainly is a lot uh, a lot happier, and that's uh, can't get enough. is status quo meets, <laughs> meets suede on a drunken night out dumb dumb deeper and dumb it's just like kind of the glitter band and it's a kind of stomper and 
it's stupid for sure. Yeah. But it's yeah. a it's it's a ballroom blitz. It's a shot of adrenaline after the the horrors, the ketamine fug of Savoir Faire. Yeah, absolutely. I love this tune. To be honest, yeah, I can't get enough. It's as you say, glorious glam electric stomp. It's got balls and attitude. You know, the same kind of feel to what made Suede a kind of sneering, dangerous proposition back in their early heyday. You know, and as you say, it's fun, but it's ridiculous fun, isn't it? It's not. It's not going to win any awards, any awards for any kind of you know lyrical content. But it's like a real adrenaline push after that kind of downer. So I'm not saying anything. It's not making a huge statement. It's not telling the kind of stories that were, you know, so prevalent on the, their debut in Dogman Star. And, you know, it sounds like he's singing, I can't get it up. I can't get that. <laughs> I just can't get that out of my head after I, I hear it. And I just wonder maybe um, he was also having problems like that through the drugs as well. Right. OK, so the next the next track, Nick, is I don't know if it's my favourite on the album, but I think it would, it would mm. put up a good you know, fight to be my favourite. And that's Everything Will Flow, which I think is a really, really beautiful song. And sing along to this song, please. You might know it. It's from a a disliked album, but it's a good song. (laughs) (laughs) Some of us like it. The critics do. There's a moment where, uh, well, more than one moment, where Brett sings the word lullaby in a very particular way. And in the background, there are strings and guitars soaring. And I kind of, I fall for it every time. Um, I think it's very, it has something of the, the, the bleakness of Dogman Star. Yeah, I think it's a high point for me, for Suede full stop ignoring the more polished production of this this could be as you say straight off dogman star and it would be considered a classic if it was for me it's such a beautiful damaged song and yeah and you you mentioned that bit about lullaby getting you every time for me it's the opening line it's a what's the early morning sun drip like blood blood from a vein so that's poetry it just gives me goosebumps i mean i've got my the hairs on my arms are standing up and I've just said the words. I haven't even heard them in my own voice and just, you know, that's making my um, my skin prickle. He, he, he has a wonderful 
ability to do that with just a line or a word or just the way that he sings a line or a word, Brett yeah. Anderson. He's very, very gifted in that. And I think when you read Cold Black Mornings, you begin to understand why. You know, he, he is like all of the best artists, somebody who has experienced pain and heartache and loss and has been damaged by that but has also come through that refining process uh, to be something to be something else as a result of it. I think he has the soul of a poet and, and, and songs like Everything Will Flow can go toe-to-toe with, with any of the supposed greats, I would argue. Yeah. And the thing for me on this one as well, that he sounds robust and healthy yeah. and, and control, controlled on this one, whereas he sounds hollow on some of the other songs and uh, that helps to carry it because if he were to be a pale imitation of himself on that then again it would suffer from having beautiful arrangement great lyrics in this case if he were to not be on on form for this one then it would have gone down a few notches but everything for me falls into place on that song it's beautiful i love it and it's followed by something that is equally beautiful so the next track is is down some of those very kind of show-stopping, breath-grabbing moments that, that, that fill albums like Dogman Star, you know, these kind of very grand, baroque, operatic moments of their, their career. Down is not that. Down is much simpler. It's a very slow-moving little song, but it contains one of my favourite suede moments, which is that, that chorus about hey, you chase the day away and you draw the blinds and blow your mind away. There's a sadness in your eyes and there's a blankness in your smile. I just think, that's great. You know, because mm. sometimes I know there's a sadness in my eyes and I know there's a blankness in my smile as well. Mm. No, I can see. Uh, yeah, it's a, very, it's a very poignant lyric. And I think the only problem I have with this song is that it struggles. The production for me is is not good it, it i think the this it has its moments lyrically i think it's a it's a beautiful song in parts but i think that steve osborne's production in this case it's sickly and messy for me it's it gets kind of mixed up and sludgy and i think brett struggles to rally himself in that kind of mess of sound and richard oaks you know, as i said at the start i think was drinking heavily during the sessions and i think that there's something about that which comes in through the song and, and maybe that seeped into the recording process. I, I, I hear something which reminds me of some kind of horrible come down in a shabby flat. And in that way, I think the, the title of the song is pretty apt. But I don't think it's the, the fault of the the lyrics. I think it's a fault of, um, for me personally, I think the production sucks on it. It could have been, it could have gone up a, a lot of levels if it had been, a bit more uh, disciplined, I think. Oh, that's interesting, Nick. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. It'd be, it'd be very nice to hear this. I, I 
wonder if it's online somewhere. Like, you know, maybe a demo of this just with Richard and Brett or just with Brett at the piano. Yeah, or... something acoustic. Something yeah. acoustic would probably work really, really well with that, yeah. Right, so then that that brings us from that down uh, something totally ridiculous and yet totally brilliant as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> she's she's the shape of a sig uh, rep. Thanks very much. Okay, so last song we're going to play tonight. Thanks for coming along. This song's called She's in Fashion. Good night. Anyone knows the words, sing along. Anyone doesn't, good clap. Go like that. On the snappies. Shaking it out on the sea She's the killer of a magazine Sing it! It's She's in Fashion. Um, <laughs> and just, just that one line. Just imagine yeah. right in that line. She's the shape of a cigarette. That's brilliant. Yeah, it's, just, it's just The so... imagery of that is just great, right? The imagery yeah. Is... It's wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. It's it's silly and yet it's evocative and provocative. It's kind of swayed by numbers in a lot of ways, though, right? I mean, I you know you've got the falsetto, you've got the references to you know gasoline and apocalyptic visions of sunshine and sunsets and all that kind of stuff. But it's a wonderful, wonderful pop song. Yeah, yeah. And um, as you mentioned earlier on, I'm a um, I'm a big fan of Happy Mondays, and I can hear a lot of. Osborne's work with them in this this song actually I mean it, it sounds a lot like um, Bob's Your Uncle from the Pills and Thrills and Billy Aches it's got that kind of mm. strummy guitar and a drum beat grooving under the vocals it's got a bit of buried wah-wah in there too and a, a bit of a trademark kind of Mark Day choppy riff under the chorus so uh, it's got a bit of a slower tempo to that but I can hear that kind of um, that kind of vibe to it which is which is nice to hear rather than him taking it in a very kind of slushy direction which i accuse him of quite regularly throughout this album but yeah she's in fashion i love it too and i like that little hark back to some songs from my late 80s the version <laughs> from, from back then 
<laughs> it, it chimes a chord for me in that way. And that, as they say, whoever they may be, is that. The first side of head music, all done and lightly dusted. If you enjoyed this episode, please do follow me on Twitter, at MildManAndMax, and you can follow Nick Amy's at Nick underscore Amy's, A-M-I-E-S, that is. You can also find the website at www.themildmannerdarmy.com, where there are hundreds of articles on all sorts of things that you might enjoy. And if you really like what we're doing, you can also pledge your support from as little as 77p per month on Patreon. You can find details of how to do that on my pinned tweet. Thanks a lot for listening, and until the next episode, bye!